We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, the topic is good people and bad people and hell. Is there such a thing as a good person? Or are all people broken and bad? And is there a real hell? And who goes there if there is? I'm Dr. Everett Piper and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Today's show is more Q&A. And the topic here is good people, bad people, and hell. As I said in the introduction, I'm going to deal with the issue, the question of what kind of people are we? Are we good? Are we bad? Is there a difference between the two? And is everybody going to be judged at the end of days? Is there an eternity? And is there a real hell? And who goes there if there is? These are very important questions that have plagued humanity for thousands of years. And we can't just set them aside as if they're old, outdated, and superstition ideas and questions. So I have a very lengthy question from a friend of mine. And I'm going to read that question, and then I'm going to try to answer his question within the context of good people, bad people, and hell. Let's take an early break. And when I get back, like I said, I'm going to read this lengthy question from a friend, and I'll give you my answer. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. I'll be right back in a couple minutes. In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one-year maintenance and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. Maybe this is a good time to give you a little uh, housekeeping information here that I haven't done in several episodes before we get into the question and the answer time to follow. First of all, if you want to follow The Rebellion on a daily basis, you can do so in a variety of ways. 
You can listen to it live Monday through Friday on KOKL Radio out of Okmulgee, Oklahoma. Or you can go to the podcast, which is uploaded to Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud on a daily basis. And all of the back issues of the rebellion are archived there. You can also access those back issues of the rebellion by going to my website, and that's DrEverettPiper.com. That's D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R.com. If you want to support the rebellion and help us pay the light bill, so to speak, you can go to patreon.com backslash Dr. Everett Piper. That's patreon.com backslash D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R. I appreciate all of you who do subscribe on a monthly basis and help us out that way. Thank you. Also, my website, dreverpiper.com, D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R.com. You can access my books. Uh, The first one is Why I'm a Liberal and Other Conservative Ideas. And if you listen routinely, you know what I'm doing there. It's a turn, um, a play on words, where I am arguing that I am more classically liberal than my left-of-center counterparts. I'm more liberal because I believe in liberty. I believe in freedom. I believe in an open and robust exchange of ideas. Cancel culture is anathema to all of that. I've tackled that repeatedly throughout the course of my career in the Ivory Tower, the Academy. And it just became apparent to me over time that this argument that progressives are liberal is a lie. They're really not, because classical liberals believe in a liberal arts education, something that was founded over a thousand years ago. You could go to the Sorbonne or you could go to Oxford, Cambridge, whatever institution you want to claim is the cradle of the liberal arts philosophy of education, do so. But the bottom line here is this, a liberal arts education was an education in liberty, an education for a free man, a free woman, a free society, a free culture. It was an education in freedom. That's been lost. The academy has collapsed. The ivory tower has become the Tower of Babel because we don't even understand the definition of classical liberalism anymore. Progressives have co-opted the word stolen, a good word, turned it on its ear, and now it's anathema to conservatives because we think we think that a liberal is synonymous with big government and the Democrat Party, when in reality that is not true. It's not true historically anyway. Maybe in recent years it has become somewhat true. But I argue that conservatives need to reclaim the high ground of our words. Words mean something. We shouldn't let good words be co-opted and redefined to mean something that's frankly opposite of what the original word was intended to convey. Words like green, it's a color. Now it's a political agenda synonymous with global warming, climate change, and big government control of our lives. If you're not green, then you're not woke. There's another word. Woke used to be something that you woke up. It was something that you were awake rather than asleep. Uh, And now it just is this new word that just is garbage. It's a garbage word that nobody really understands it other than it's a word that you can put over the top of lunacy, craziness, cancel culture, microaggressions, trigger warnings. You offended me. You, you, you are the problem. Critical race theory, SJW, social justice warriors, black lives matter. Put it all under the umbrella of woke LGBTQIA. Again, it's a word that's been it's just been uh, completely, completely abused. It doesn't even mean anything. At least it doesn't mean what it originally was coined to mean. 
Um, gay. Gay used to mean happy. Now it's a word for sexual license and licentiousness, sexual debauchery. The list goes on and on. So why I'm a liberal is an argument to reclaim some words. First and foremost among them, reclaim the high ground of liberty. My second book, which was the national bestseller, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth, is my take on cancel culture and the degradation, the destruction, the dumbing down of the academy to nothing but a daycare rather than a place where we actually challenge young people to grow up and think and act like adults. And then finally, the sequel to that was Grow Up. Life isn't safe, but it's good. There I give you 15 chapters or thereabout of solutions rather than just bemoaning the problem and complaining about the collapse of the ivory tower and this daycare society that we've created. I actually give you another book, which is a is a book of solutions. So what are we going to do about this? How can we become an adult people rather than be satisfied with this perpetual adolescence that America has become. So if you're interested in that, go to my books. Uh, You can find those on my website. Okay, let's get into today's show. Here's the lengthy question that I want to read to you. And this was from a friend of mine, not an adversary. So this is a friend, not foe. But um, he says this, perhaps now would be a good time for me to give you a rather simplistic view of religion and voice some of my doubts and questions about it. First, I have no doubt that there is a God, and I have no reason to believe that he is not a good and generous God. I believe this God is a passive God. He puts us here, and nothing we do is predetermined. He simply allows us to fail or to succeed. If everything is predetermined, why even bother putting us here unless simply for his amusement? Each of us has a conscience, I'm not exactly sure how it's developed, but I don't have a problem accepting your thoughts on that matter. God is so superior to mere mortals that he put Christ here to have interface between him and us, he says. And then he goes on. My friend says this. Okay, so far. But here is where things sort of fall apart for me. If our God is good and generous, what will happen to the huge number of those who do good but are not Christians? It is impossible for me to believe that a good God would simply dismiss those souls. Close quote. That's my friend's question. Um, And it's presented in somewhat of a statement too, right? So basically, let's go back to the question. If our God is good, what will happen to the huge numbers of those who do good but are not Christians? It is impossible for me to believe that a good God would simply dismiss those souls. All right, now this is a question a lot of people ask. In fact, if we're all honest, probably every one of us has asked this question. We wrestle with this. Will people that do good, people that we know that are good, moral, hardworking, generous, self-sacrificial people, if they don't claim Christ, if they don't accept Jesus, if they don't believe in the God of the Bible, If they dismiss that, will God dismiss them? Interesting, isn't it? Well, here's my answer. And I I want to be very clear right up front that I'm not too sure my feeble attempts to respond to questions that have been plaguing humanity from time immemorial are likely to be the end of this. Okay, Again, when all of us come to these important questions, I think it's incredibly important. It is paramount 
that we take a spoonful of humility and answer accordingly. That's why I don't really think my opinion matters on this. I mean, I don't think your opinion matters on this. These are deeper questions than mere human opinion. We've got to go to something that is more permanent and enduring, immutable and true than our personal feelings and opinions on these very important matters of eternity. That's why we have to have a measuring rod outside of those things being measured. That's why I trust the narrative of Scripture, of Revelation, of the Bible in answering these questions. So that's my bias. That is my bias. Um, And I also think there's a little bit, if not quite a bit, of the quadrilateral that comes into play here. And that is um, experience, tradition, i.e. history, reason, and Scripture. I think as we look at the, as we look at the world around us, we can understand what uh, G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, Chuck Colson, and some others have told us about the veracity of the Bible's answer to these questions: good people, bad people, heaven and hell. All right. So what I'm saying here is, at the end of the day, I it would be a a tad bit presumptuous of me to think that I've got all the answers here. I have to go to something bigger than me for these answers. So what I'm going to do here is answer the question. I'm going to give it a try, but I'm going to do so with that spirit of humility, recognizing that there has to be, there has to be a scale that is true rather than your opinion or my opinion on these things. We can't put our thumb on the scale and try to tip the balance in our favor here. We have to listen to the wisdom of the ages, tradition, history, use our rational capacities, reason, we have to say, well, how's this working for us, this other worldview that denies the Bible's answers to these questions? Does it work or does it not? Does it make sense? And then ultimately, the trump card on this question, this debate, is the Bible. So another sidebar here, if I could, before I launch into this, and then I'll be very quick and answer the question. I do think there are times where we all run into a wall that's constructed of the bricks representing the limits of human reason. And when that happens, we have to just humbly say, I don't know how to answer the question. I have to go somewhere else to get the answer. Uh, Maybe the phrase banging your head against the wall comes into play here. We just have to recognize we're running headfirst into eternity as we try to answer these questions. And we're running headfirst. We're driving the car, if you will, straight toward a wall that will not fall. It's a wall of reality. It's a wall that we have to humbly acknowledge is there. Otherwise, we're going to create a disaster by accelerating as we come closer to it, rather than tapping the brakes a bit and recognizing that that wall of truth is permanent and true. And we just can't keep banging our heads against it in denial. I don't know if that makes sense or not. But all right, with all that said, I I take some comfort in the position of the Greek Orthodox Church here, where they just say, we don't know, okay? And they rest in the mystery of God. Sometimes I think evangelicals and others, they just want to say, well, we've got all the answers. I think this is one of the problems with uh, five-point Calvinism. It's so logical and so tight in its systematic theology that it it doesn't leave much room to just rest in the mystery of a God that's so much bigger than us and say, with comfort, relax a little bit and say, I just don't know. So in that context, I want to go back to the story of the Roman centurion 
okay, in the Bible. Now, this was a man likely trained and educated in the systems of Greek and Roman logic. He's a Roman centurion, okay? He's a Roman. So he admitted that he had unbelief. When he approached Jesus, he said, Lord, I believe, but please help my unbelief. Now, this is a passage of Scripture I take great comfort in. Um, I think it's particularly powerful. And I personally think that we'd all do very well to humbly stand with this soldier and even with the blind man at the edge of the pool of Siloam and admit that we don't know how to answer all the questions. Okay, remember the, the blind man? He, he was, um, it's the story of I was once blind, but now I see. This is a very important question, or, uh, story, and it dovetails very well with the Roman centurion. Okay, both of these guys said, we don't know how to answer all the questions. And some things are just beyond our understanding. But there is one thing that we do know. Sight comes from the Savior. We were blind, but now we see. Okay, you remember the blind man in the pool of sight. Well, Jesus healed him. And then the Pharisees started haranguing him afterwards, asking him, who healed you? Who did this? And he finally said, I don't know the answers to all your questions. I don't even know for sure who this man is. But what I do know is I was blind and now I see. The Savior gave him sight. So there's humility in both of these stories, the blind man in the Pool of Siloam, as well as the Roman centurion. And the issue here is Christ is the answer. Christ is the reason I can see anything. Christ is the reason I can even have this dialogue or this conversation with those of you who are listening to me right now. My only recourse for finding answers to questions that are for me unresolved is to go back to him with a capital H as my teacher. Go back to Jesus as my teacher. Go back to the word made flesh and dwelling among us. Go back to the person who actually rose from the grave and proved his claims by doing so and see what he tells me. Okay, what does Jesus say? Like C.S. Lewis said, Christ is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he is the Lord. And if he is who he claimed to be, i.e. the Lord, then his word, okay, what he says on basically everything is the final word for me. That's my bias. That's my presupposition as I answer these questions of good people, bad people, and hell and heaven. So maybe that's why the Gospel of John starts out by telling us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Maybe John starts out by defining Jesus as the Word because his words are the ultimate and final measuring rod for us to evaluate everything. This is the grid through which we must sift all of our questions, all of our worldview confusion, all of our concerns and anxieties about the present, the future, and eternity. Morality, immorality, goodness, badness, etc. Who we are as people, I believe, has to. these questions have to be sifted through this grid of Christ. The Word made flesh and dwelling among us. Like I've said before, he defines himself as an alphabet, my goodness. We ought to pay attention to the man who spells out everything, the Alpha and the Omega. So, on the questions of heaven and hell, there are some things I just don't understand. And where I say, I don't know. And in such cases, in these cases, the only way for me to even come a tad bit closer to getting it, understanding it, is to go back and read the words of the teacher, okay, the coach, Jesus, 
God himself over and over again. I need to go back and read these words time and again, and then do my best to understand and believe them. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief, and obey them. Obey those words. Believe and obey. And this is, this is why I've got great affinity for the story of George MacDonald in The Curate's Awakening that I've shared with you before. Remember, this is a story of a pastor who basically is asking the same question. He was a young pastor, a curate, that's what he was called back in the day. He just graduated from seminary. He gets his first church out on the hills of Scotland back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he goes about doing his job. He, he reads from the common book of prayer. He actually has sermons that have been pre-prepared for him by his predecessor. They've been left in a file. He administers communion. He does his job. He does what he's been trained to do in seminary. Well, you know the rest of the story if you've listened to this show before. He, he's preaching a sermon one Sunday morning, and there's an atheist that's there as a guest. And after the sermon, this young atheist approaches this young pastor on the steps of the church as everybody is exiting, shakes his hand, leans over and says, Pastor, you know you don't believe a word of any of that nonsense you just preached today. It really takes the pastor aback. But the young man, the pastor, is honest enough with himself and frankly with his congregation to admit that the challenge was legit. He's really, really in a spiritual crisis right now, a professional crisis, uh, a life crisis. But he's honest enough to admit it. He's humble. So he goes to an old saint of the church, an 80-year-old man named Polworth, and he asks Mr. Polworth, how do I know if the story of Jesus is true? Because I'm doubting it. I don't know if this is real or not. And Polworth gives him a very simple answer. He says, if you want to know if the story of Christ is true, go read his words and do them. That's the end of it. That's his advice. Go read the words of Christ and then practice them. Do them. Obey them. Even if you don't believe, behave. All right? So for the rest of the book, chapter after chapter, the curate, the pastor, does what Mr. Polworth tells him to do. He reads the Bible on a daily basis And then he goes out and he does the words of Jesus. He behaves. He's obedient. He practices the words of Christ. Even though he's not too sure who Christ is, he practices his direction, his directives, his his teaching. All right? Chapter after chapter. And at the end of the book, there's a a chapter called The Curate's Resolve, And he stands before his congregation. He says, you know that I've been preaching on a weekly basis all of this stuff. I've been telling you all that I'm in a a dark place spiritually, that I'm wrestling, I'm doubting. Uh, I feel like Jacob. I just am wrestling with God on a daily basis, and I don't even know who the God is I'm wrestling with. But I've been trying to obey the words of Christ, and I've been preaching to you week after week accordingly. And then he says this, I stand before you today after weeks of doing this, And I want to tell you that in my attempt to obey the words recorded as his, Christ's, I have found grandeur beyond the realm of any human invention, and I therefore cast my lot with those of the crucified. This is powerful. This curate, this preacher, this doubting Thomas, if you will, this Roman centurion, Lord, I believe, but help thou my unbelief, this blind man at the Pool of Siloam who says, I don't know the answer to all your questions, but what I do know is I was blind, but now I see. This, this same type of person stands before his congregation and says, I've had doubts, 
Well, I've had lots of doubts. I still have some, but in my obey, excuse me, in my attempt to obey the words recorded as his, I have found grandeur beyond the realm of any human invention. You can't make this stuff up. I have actually read his words and I've obeyed them or I've done my best on a daily basis to do so. And in my attempts to follow his words, to put my obedience even ahead of my belief, I have seen grandeur beyond the realm of any human invention. This is of God. This is not of man. And therefore, I am going to tell you today that I cast my lot with those of the crucified, with those of Christ. So this is powerful to me. Now, am I claiming that he was saved through behavior? No, not at all. What I'm claiming is that his belief actually sprung from the soil of obedience. Sometimes it's important to reverse the equation. So I want to make one thing clear here. With the admission of all my doubts and unanswered questions laid out for all to see, okay, there's one thing I can say with confidence is if there are those out there who have lived their lives and need no grace and forgiveness, then I surely know I'm not one of them. In other words, like John Newton said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I'm see. John Newton is referring to the blind man and the pool of Siloam. And that it's grace, a grace that saves every one of us because we're all wretches. There is no such thing as a good person. If there is, and there's someone out there that's in no need of God's grace, they've lived such a life of of perfection, that there's no sin in their lives. I don't know who that person is, but I know I'm not one of them. And my guess is if you're listening to me right now, you're not either. And even my friend who asked this question, he was not so arrogant as to pretend that he was in that that class of perfection. He knew that he wasn't. So there is an acknowledgement. We all know, along with John Newton, that we're broken, that we're sinners, that we're wretches, and that it's only God's grace that allows us to move from blindness to sight. We were lost, and now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. So my response to the question of hell is like this. God has not given me the task of serving as judge over those who haven't heard of Christ or anyone else for that matter. I'm not the judge. Um, Thank God for that because I'd be a lousy judge, and so would you. Therefore, when it comes to people who have not heard the gospel— Frankly, I can't answer for sure. I don't know. I don't know how God is going to treat the people who haven't heard the gospel. But what I do know is that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Is it possible that those who haven't heard the gospel in in some far-off land Is it possible they've had visions that Christ has come to them in dreams? We hear this time and time again from Muslims that they actually had Christ come to them in a dream and communicate clearly with them and that that is what led them to repentance, to confession, to Christianity. It was this special revelation, this blessing, this extra special grace that God gave these people that had never opened a Bible. But yet they came to Christ through this vision. And frankly, that's how St. Paul first came to Christ. Christ confronted him visibly on the road to Damascus and woke him up. And that was the source of his conversion. So is it possible for people to be saved, saved from hell, 
as the result of a special revelation of Christ to that individual. It seems that that is biblical, and that's possible. I don't know. What I do know is what Jesus explicitly said. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Christianity is a very exclusive religion. It's not a great big group hug. It's not just one of several paths up to the same destination at the top of the mountain. It, it, it does matter what you believe. because Just because it works for you doesn't mean it is a path to eternity. We're told for, that for all have sinned, everyone. There's no such thing as a good person. For all have sinned. I'll say it one more time. There is no such thing as a good person. If that offends you, I'm sorry. But if you think you're good enough, to ignore everything I've said in the last 25 minutes or so. Uh, Okay, you're in a category I'm not. So I'll say it one more time. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no such thing as a righteous person. No, not one. And the wages of this sin is death. Okay? The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is hell. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteous. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. These are gospel truths. These are biblical truths. Is there any such thing as a good person? I don't think so. Is everybody bad? Yes, we are all sinners. We're all wretches. But I was once blind and now I see. And what is the source of that vision? Jesus Christ himself. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.